Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good evening. How are you? Oh, come on, man. Come on. It's Sunday night. We're here. The Lord protected us. It's the Lord's day. Lots of people don't get to do this. Come on now. All right. And by the way, while you're waking from your slumber, happy 14th birthday, Crosspoint. Um, <laughs> no, man. No. I'm sorry this morning got postponed because we had a big party planned for you. And, but no, we didn't actually. I just thought about it. Actually, I just thought about it about 30 minutes ago. That's how much we, we put into it. But um, yeah, 14 years ago on April 17th, 2005 was our first public gathering as a church. So um, this Wednesday, um, I don't know, like have some cake and think of Cross Point. And it's good to have our brothers and sisters, a few of you from Midtree here as their services were canceled this morning. Praise God for what he's doing out there at Midtree. And um, if you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 12. I'm really looking forward to getting into this text this morning. As you're finding Romans 12, let me mention a couple things to you. Um, first is that um, we're starting Romans 14 this, mor- this evening. Um, and then next week, we're going to hit a little pause button in Romans, being that it is Resurrection Sunday. I always feel a little strange about that because... I think every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, but uh, kind of bowing down to this cultural idea of celebrating this one, I I think there's benefit in that, and so we're going to gather together and we're going to preach a message that I think will be aimed at kind of a straight fastball down the middle of the plate gospel presentation for people that may not be used to hearing it, that they can hear on that Sunday that they might not ordinarily come to church. And then the following two Sundays, the last Sunday of April and the first Sunday of May, Jennifer and I are going to be actually out of the country. We're going to the United Arab Emirates, Abu Dhabi, where I will preach in Abu Dhabi in the Middle East. And our dear friend Gareth Franks and his wife Carrie, who are from South Africa, but have been missionaries in India for the past 15 years, have recently moved to uh, Abu Dhabi. And they're pastoring, he's pastoring a church there. I'm going to preach there. And then the Franks are going with us to India. And I'm going to teach a Bible camp there for some of the churches that we've worked with there in India over the years. And so for the following two Sundays after next Sunday, we'll be out of Romans. Robert and Tyler will preach. And then we'll get back into Romans, um, Lord willing, when I return. So... uh, this is an important chapter. I know I say that about every chapter. I, 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 actually, every chapter in the Bible is important. I think Romans 14 is particularly applicable to the life of a church. The Bible is not a fortune cookie. And I think one of the Achilles heels of much of American Christianity is that it treats the Bible... I think because oftentimes in many pulpits in our country, I don't mean to be overly pessimistic, I'm just calling it like it is, because many churches don't actually preach through the Bible, and they don't have a a robust understanding of the authority of the Bible, that people tend to treat the Bible like it's a fortune cookie. And what I mean by that is they mostly neglect it, and then when they're in a pinch 
or they have some difficult situation in their life, they want to know what the Bible says about whatever, fill in the blank. And primarily, the Bible doesn't really work that way. I'm not, to, I'm not saying that the Bible is not full of answers. It's full of wisdom, and it applies to all of life. But the Bible's not a kind of fill-in-the-blank, fortune-cookie answer book. It's a book about God's revelation to his people and how he has reconciled a lost people to himself through the work of his son and how he will restore all things to himself, whether by atoning for their sin through Jesus or judging them rightly for eternity. And then how we should live as people in community called the church, both universal and local, for God's glory, and how we should live together in wisdom so that together with the word of God as our light unto our path and the wisdom subordinate to the word of God of the church, that we learn how to live and apply God's truth to all of life's situations. It's not a fortune cookie. And Romans 14 is a kind of chapter and into 15 that tells us really how we should live in hard to discern situations. So let's read Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, and then we'll take a three-week break and we'll get back into it. Um, so remember everything that we say tonight, okay? So we can pick back up in a month. All right, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Let me read it and then we'll, we'll pray. As for the one, this is the Apostle Paul talking to Christians in Rome and he's preached the gospel in chapters 1 through 11. He's laid down how guilty sinners can be made right through Jesus' work on the cross. That's what the Bible's about. That's what Romans is about. Then chapters 12 and 13 are about how we should live as living sacrifices. And now 14 is about unity in the church over some differing opinions. And he says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. All right, well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this text and really, in a, in a sense, understand what he's getting at in chapter 14. Lord, help us now as we open your word. Lord, thank you. Um, thank you for, for sparing us um, in the storm this morning. We continue to think of our, our friends across the river in Alabama who suffered so greatly uh, a little over a month ago. Lord, encourage them, help the gospel, um, just bring healing to their hearts and salvation to people who need you and encouragement to those who already know you. Lord, we don't take for granted the fact that we can gather this evening. Thank you for your grace. Lord, we, we ask now that as we open your word that we don't waste this evening. We come to worship you. We thank you for the children in this room. I pray that you'd free parents from any um, anxiety. Thank you, God, for little children. We don't want to prevent them 
Thank you for those that are serving our, our very young ones tonight. Help us to understand this text, Lord. Help this chapter as we work through it in the coming weeks make us as a church more like Jesus so that we smell more like the gospel to an onlooking world because the world needs Jesus. And that's why you made this church 14 years ago. That's why you made Midtree Church last summer. That's why every church exists or should exist. It's because you want to bring all of your children home through the gospel. So help us now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's work through these four verses just to understand it, and then I want us to land on and end with three truths that I see in this text. So look again, look again at, verse, at verse 1. Paul says, as for the weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinion. So what's Paul getting at here? He kind of changes what he's talking about. Remember, we just ended Romans 13, which talked about how Christians should interact with government, and then how um, we, we should be waiting for the return of Jesus, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't be slothful. We should fulfill the law through love. And now in chapter 14, he's picking up this issue of, of disunity in the church. And remember the situation in the Roman church. It's comprised of Gentiles, non-Jews, who had come to faith, and then Jews, ethnic Jews, who had heard the message of Jesus and accepted it. And so there was tension between the ethnic Jewish Christians and the Gentiles because the Jews were still, many of them, wanting to hold on to the Old Testament. They weren't quite understanding yet the implications of how the gospel and Jesus' work fulfilled the requirements of the law for us, that we can't make ourselves right through law abiding, that Jesus has done that and given us his righteousness. And they were still trying to hang on to that law a little bit. They were kind of legalistic in that way. And then there were Gentiles who weren't burdened um, with any previous sort of religious experience. In one sense, that was kind of good for them, but yet they also had kind of problems with other sin issues. And so there's, there's tension in the church between these two these two factions of Christians, the Jews who had become Christians and the Gentiles who were now Christians. And Paul is writing here and he's contrasting the weak and the strong. Now what he means by the weak and the strong here in chapter 14 is not that the weak were like more susceptible to sin or temptation and that the strong were like you know spiritual varsity. He's talking about matters of conscience. And in this particular instance, he's talking about whether or not a person, how they feel about whether or not they should eat particular foods that were outlawed in the Old Testament by the law, or, uh, or the, the, the issue in the, the next paragraph is going to be which day Christians should worship on, or whether they can drink wine. A whole host of issues were probably plaguing Christians at this time. And so what's going on is that there are Christians, likely Jews, that were converted to Christ that still were thinking that they were in some way beholden to uphold the Old Testament law. And so their conscience was tender. And Paul is calling them weak. Not that, they're, not that they were weak in resisting sin, but just that they, they hadn't quite worked through the implications of justification by faith alone and Christ alone yet. And then the strong understood the implications of the gospel and knew that they were free. It's very similar 
to the situation that was going on in 1 Corinthians 8. And what was going on in 1 Corinthians 8 is that there was this meat that had been previously sacrificed to idols. And some Christians in the Corinthian church had participated previously in that idol worship, and they felt like, you know what? We don't think Christians should partake or should eat that meat because it was previously sacrificed to idols. And then there were other Christians that were saying, you know what? There, are, there is no such thing as idols, so let's have some filet mignon. I mean, don't waste a good steak, is basically what the argument was. And Paul is saying that there's going to be differing levels of, of tenderness of conscience in the church. Very similar situation. And here in Romans chapter 14, Paul then in verse 1 is saying that there's these tender in conscience, these weak in the faith. He's speaking to the strong Christians. And as we progress through Romans chapter 14, we're going to see that Paul actually sides with those that he called are strong in their conscience. But here he is telling them not to look down upon those people whose consciences are still tender. And he says, welcome him and not to quarrel over opinions. Now, what are opinions? We're going to look a little bit more closely at this in a second. But opinions is part of understand, understanding what opinions are, I think is vital in understanding Christian maturity. Paul is going to distinguish for us about issues that we should really go to the mat about and argue about and those things that we should give one another a pass over. He's not talking about quarreling over essential truths. He's saying that there are going to be differences of opinions in secondary and third level matters in the Christian life and that we should be gracious towards one another in our difference of opinion even if the other person is very likely wrong. I think that's what Paul's point is in, in verse 1. Verse 2 he says, One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. And so he's saying each person will have a different conscience about various matters. And speaking of conscience, there's a book that we have bought and we put in the resource center that is just an excellent resource that I would commend to you. It's called Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ. It's written by um, a couple guys that are up on staff at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's an excellent resource. And they define conscience. Let me, let me read to you their defini definition of conscience. It's our sense or awareness of what we believe is right and wrong. And the point they make in this book is that everybody, every Christian is, no two Christians are going to have the exact same conscience. We're going to have differing opinions about how the gospel and the biblical truth applies to our life in secondary issues. No two people have the same exact conscience, and nobody's conscience, no matter how mature they are in the faith, is exactly calibrated to the Word of God. The only person whose conscience has been exactly in line with the Word of God is Jesus in His human form. And so we, we all have to work on this, and Paul is saying that there are going to be differing levels of conscience in the church. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Again, he's talking about this secondary issue of vegetables. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. He says there in verse 3, not to pass judgment. And this is an area where I think we, we have a lot of confusion. 
He says don't pass judgment, but about what? About this very secondary issue of these dietary laws that are no longer in effect for Christians. But the Bible is full of instances where we as Christians are actually commanded and called to pass judgment on one another for the sake of the clarity of the gospel. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, we won't take the time to read it, but there's this issue in the Corinthian church where there was this man who was having this illicit relationship with his father's wife. So he's having this sinful relationship with his stepmom, apparently, and the Corinthian church was not doing anything about it, and it was besmirching the witness of the gospel to the onlooking world in the city of Corinth. And Paul is saying there, why aren't you guys judging this guy? He says, put him out of the church. In fact, Paul says, put him out of the church, hand him over to Satan so that he would repent of his sin and hopefully be saved on the day of judgment. What does that mean? Hand him over to Satan. Where, where, do, you, where do you go? Where, like down 3rd down Street, over there on Orange Avenue, and there you'll find Satan in Corinth. And go, go hand, do a prisoner exchange with Lucifer. No, what he's saying when he says hand him over to Satan, it means pass judgment on this guy and say to him that your life does not, the way you're living is, is not in congruence with your confession. And so we are passing judgment on you and we are going to put you out of the church for the sake of your soul so that it will wake you up so that you might come to repentance. That's what I call judging somebody for their good. And so there are times when, when we actually are. But when should we judge each other? When it's matters of eternal salvation and, and, and primary truth at stake, not when it's these secondary matters. And the problem with the Christians in Rome is that they were taking this very secondary issue and they were making it primary. And so they were confusing. Uh, they were really blurring what's really important from things that are secondary. And Paul is saying in those situations, don't pass judgment on one another. And friends, let's just admit, don't these issues take wisdom? Don't they take lots of information to understand what's going on? And so, so the, the church must walk in humility towards one another. And then in verse 4 he says this, Who are you to pass judgment, again on these secondary matters, on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And who is he? Who is this person that they are judging? Who, who is he or she the servant of? God himself. So Paul is saying, he's saying, you're messing with God's servant. In fact, that word servant in the original language, it's a beautiful word. It, it literally means house slave. You, you are commanding, you are binding, you're bossing around the house slave of another, and that house slave is God's. Isn't that, isn't that a perspective on the Christian life? We're all house slaves. That's, that's who you are. If you're a Christian, that's who I am. And so we should treat one another very tenderly because we each belong to another master. 
And we don't have the authority to bind one another's consciences and boss each other around in these secondary matters because we belong to God. So, I think that's what Paul is saying in these first four verses. Let's look then, at, let's settle down and conclude with three, with three truths to help us understand this short paragraph and I think the whole chapter better. The first is this. Spiritual maturity understands the differences between binding truth and opinions. Spiritual maturity understands the difference between binding truth and opinions. It means that the more we expose ourselves to the Bible, the more we're familiar with its peaks and valleys and its ebbs and flows and, and the Spirit of God that has written the Word of God, the more familiar we are with the ethos and the beautiful terrain of the Bible, we are better able to distinguish what is primary in the Christian life and what is secondary and just opinions. So let me give us... Let me give us just a kind of calibration of things that I think fall into different categories. What are primary areas of doctrine that I think you, if you're a believer, I think you should be clear on? Here's a couple. that I've, This isn't necessarily an exhaustive list, but I think it's a pretty decent list. What are primary areas of doctrine? You can put it up on the screen there. Um, doctrine, the, the, the doctrine of God, issues about the nature of God. He's triune. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think you should and, and must believe that. The, the nature of the Bible, the doctrine of the Word of God. I think that the Bible is inspired by God. That doesn't mean that it is inspirational merely, but that it's breathed out by God. I think that the Bible is exactly what God intended to have written down over the centuries through over 40 authors. I think that the Bible is inerrant. It's without error. I think it is authoritative, and so I think it's very important. I think that you should believe that. I think that's a primary area of doctrine. The nature of Christ. I think the Bible's clear that Jesus is truly God and truly man. That's a mystery. Springer read from Philippians 2 about the nature of Christ being God, but yet fully man. We can't put those two things together fully in our minds. It's, it's, it's beyond our comprehension. And praise God that it's beyond our comprehension because Jesus is not somebody that we can explain and quantify. He's God. But I do think that we clearly see in the Bible that Jesus is truly God, the second person of the Trinity, no beginning, no end, the creator of all things, and yet he's truly human. I think that's important. I think it's essential to biblical Christianity. I think we look in the Bible and we see the nature of creation and mankind. I think that everything began from nothing. God did everything. I think he created us male and female. I think you should believe that. I think no matter what Facebook says, how many gender options there are for you to choose from, I think, in fact, I know that there are only two. You are either a boy or a girl. You can say whatever you want you to say you are, but you're a man or a woman. I think that's essential. I, I think that's binding. I think sin and the fall is another area of primary doctrine. I think that sin is the problem. I think sin has separated us from God. Mankind fell. We are not neutral. We are separated from God by birth because we're all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. I think that's clear in the Bible. 
I think the exclusivity of the salvation in Christ is clear in the Bible. I think there is no other way to the Father but through Christ. John 14, 6. I think that the only way to be made right with our holy creator God is through faith in the sacrifice of his son on the cross. I don't think anybody is with God for eternity except through Christ. I don't think people that haven't heard of Christ kind of make it to heaven on a free pass. I don't think anybody that in their morality, no matter where they come from in the world, get to heaven unless they come through Christ. I think the Bible's really clear about that. I, I think that we should be clear about the nature of the church. The church is not just American. The church is not just one race. The church is not just one style or denomination. It is made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation all over this world. So that has all sorts of implication about how we treat other people in other cultures. I think the Bible is utterly clear about the return of Christ, that it will be personal, bodily, visible, and he will come and retrieve his bride. I think that's utterly clear. And I think the Bible is utterly clear about the reality of eternity, that there are only two eternal destinations for all people, every soul, heaven or hell. Now, this isn't necessarily in this text. That was just a little pastoral point because I want to teach you and I want to make you biblical Christians. I think those are things that you should believe. And I don't think, I, I'm, I think you can wrestle with those truths. I think the Trinity is hard to understand. I think the nature of Jesus' humanity and divinity is hard to understand. You can wrestle with those things. You can seek to understand them better and better. But I think you should accept those things. And I, and, and I don't think Christians really should argue about those things because I think they're utterly clear. And I think we should bind each, other's, bind each other's opinions about those things. I, think, I, I, am conf, I, I, feel, I feel on biblical ground saying you should believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You should believe that Jesus is the only way. You should believe that the Bible is true. You should believe that, that, that Jesus is truly man and truly God. And if you don't believe those things, I'm worried for your soul. But then there are examples of things that are Maybe important, but they're secondary. What's a couple examples of those things? Let's put that list up. Examples of secondary, but important areas of doctrine. The extent of God's sovereignty and salvation. I think that God predestines, elects, chooses. I think that's utterly clear in the scripture. I think the Bible uses those words. I think every Christian has to wrestle with those words because they're in the Bible. But differing Christians through the centuries are going to maybe have different opinions on exactly what those words mean. I think they clearly mean that God is utterly sovereign over salvation, but Christians have differing opinions over those things. I understand that. Different Christians have different views about spiritual gifts, whether or not some of them are still relevant or available for the church today. Some Christians have uh, different understandings of the roles between men and women in the church. Some people think that women can be pastors or preach God's word in front of a mixed audience. I don't. I think the Bible's clear about that. But I, I recognize that brothers and sisters in the body of Christ around the world may have differing views on that. Many Christians have different views about end times and various views about the millennium, premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. And many Christians have different views about the age of the earth. Is the earth young, about 10,000 years old, or is the earth very, very old, millions or billions of years old? Now, uh, this isn't the point of this sermon. I, I, have, I have actually really clear opinions on all of those things, um, and I'd be glad to tell you about them. Um, and I've actually taught on a lot of these things. Today's not the day to do that. 
But the point is, is that I recognize, I recognize that brothers and sisters, even in this church and in the body of Christ, can be true brothers and sisters and disagree with me on those things, and I may be wrong on some of them, right? And so I'm not going to bind somebody's conscience on those secondary issues of doctrine. Now, I recognize that some of them may be so important to various people that they just don't really want to be part of a church that might teach on one issue. I think that's fine, but I want to be clear that I put those things in an important category, but not essential for salvation category. You understand? And then there's even a third level issue. It, it, let, bring, put that list up. Examples of third level issues, opinions. Things like worship styles, more liturgical, drums, electric guitars, instruments at all, political opinions, public versus private versus homeschooling decisions for, for families, right? We got some people, I don't know if you know, people got opinions on that kind of stuff. Drinking alcohol in moderation. I think every Christian must believe that you should not be drunk because that's clear in the scripture. But I think faithful Christians can have different views on whether or not a Christian should drink, has the freedom to drink alcohol. In fact, that's one of the things that Paul mentions in chapter 14. I have an opinion on that as well. But I don't want you to think about just that, so I'm not going to tell you where I stand. But come to me and I'll tell you. Going into debt. Some Christians have very strong opinions. Those are examples of even third-level issues where we can have differing opinions about and we may have strong opinions about them. And you, in fact, may be right. But the moment that you try and bind another Christian's conscience on those issues and say that this is what it means to truly follow Christ and be a true Christian, then you are skirting very close to losing the gospel in legalism. And that's the point, I think, that Paul is making in this text. And a spiritually mature, Bible-saturated, gospel-savvy church can distinguish between things that are primary, secondary, and even third level, and can have grace for people that aren't where they are on the second and third level. Does that make sense? Man, that is so important. Which leads us to the second truth is that we should graciously accept other believers who have different opinions. Paul makes the point in our text that we should welcome them because God has welcomed them. So do we want our test of fellowship to be narrower than God's? You know how, um, like when you're a little kid maybe playing like baseball in the yard, or maybe you're divvying up on like a little league baseball. You know, there's like those kids that you like to play catch with because they just, you know, they could, they could throw it back. And then there were other kids that just kind of got on your nerves and you didn't want to warm up with them, you know. Am I the only one? Was I just a, just a, just a little punk of a kid? Maybe I was. <laughs> Thank you. But when we do that, it's a kind of favoritism. It's a kind of exclusivity that narrows a door that God has widened. Can you imagine that? When we, when we make third level issues primary and say, no, no, to kind of be part of this fellowship, you have to have these stances on all of these things. You've got to homeschool your kids or no, you've got to public school your kids or this is what you've got to believe about all these things. Then what you do is God has built a door jam and we're like moving it in and making that door narrower. And friends, that... 
That can be death to the gospel culture of a church. And that's the point Paul is making here. And then, the third truth that I think Paul is getting at here that, uh, that I want us to, to just hammer home to our own souls that is so important for us as we just even think about all of these things is this point he makes about how we are house slaves. And it's this, the, the truth number three, and we'll end on this, is that we belong to God, all of us, and should live for him and not ourselves. <laughs> when we're considering all of these things in community, and friends, we have, to, we have to rub elbows with one another. We have to have hard conversations. And, and I do think that there is, there is right and wrong in each context and culture in each one of these things. I don't think it's all ambiguous. And I don't think God just says, I'll just kind of do whatever you want to do. I do think that some people are right and some people are wrong in every situation. But the point Paul is making is on these third level issues, being right is actually less important than understanding who you're dealing with a house slave of God, a fellow brother or sister, and the humility that you should treat them because God owns you too. Listen to what, listen to what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, he's speaking about sexual immorality, and, and then he gets to this point here at the end of the chapter. So let's just start reading in verse 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's such an important point about the Christian life. He says, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. In verse 19, listen to his reasoning for fleeing sin, in this case sexual immorality. And I would also say this same reasoning applies to why we should, why we should be very humble about our own lives and who we're owned by and why we should treat one another with great tenderness and care. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So what Paul is telling us here, we piece it together with what he's telling us in Romans chapter 14, be tender with one another because each other are God's house slaves, it's God's servant. You're his servant too. He's bought you. He owns you. And so we should be very gentle with one another when we disagree over these things because, because we belong to God. That should, that should inform the way we deal with one another and the way that we as Christians navigate how we're going to handle these areas of opinion. How I handle whether or not I'm going to drink alcohol or how I'm going to, uh, you know, educate my children or go into debt. All of those things are incredibly important because I'm not my own. The gospel has not just freed us so that we can just kind of do whatever we want, but it's freed us so that we can serve. And Paul's point in the second half of this chapter is he says, don't use your liberty for selfishness, but use your liberty to love other people. And in fact, esteem another person's progress with Christ greater than your own liberty. So there are points where you actually decide not to do something that you are free to do in the gospel for the sake of somebody else's tender conscience. Amen. <laughs> Amen. That's big. That's really big. Until it's something that we really want to do, but our legalistic friend is shutting us down, right? 
That's, that's where the rubber meets the road. We exist for one another. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, I hope you understand that I think that doctrine is really, really, really important. I hope that nothing that I've said today or will say as we work through chapter 14 would give you any hint of the really wrong idea that I think that doctrine is kind of ah, secondary. I think, man, come on now. I think doctrine is really, really important. But Jesus does not say in verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have every second and third and fourth level of doctrine and opinion worked out to the nth degree so that you're completely right on everything. He says, you know, we should pursue. This is not a license for a laissez-faire living. We should pursue. Everything we do is to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Strive to glorify God in everything you do according to the Bible. But Jesus is saying here that there's a mode, there's a posture to live out this intentional truth-filled, doctrine-filled life, and it's a posture of love towards people because sometimes we get it wrong. And, and sometimes we get it right, and they're wrong, but even then we're gracious towards one another. Because if we make those second and third level things that they're wrong about primary, then we lose the very gospel that we're so adamant about. And I think where all this is going, I think this is going to the middle of chapter 15. And let me read this. In fact, in just a moment, we're going to sing a few songs, and then Springer's going to come and read this text again for our benediction and I think it would benefit us to just hear it twice because I think this is the whole point of this section of Romans. I think this section in Romans goes from the beginning of chapter 14 to through verse 7 of Romans 15. You know that the chapters and verses of the Bible were added centuries after Paul wrote this letter and they're helpful. I'm really thankful for chapters and verses because it helps us find stuff. But the people who first did it didn't always get it right. And this is one instance where they probably should have started chapter 15 at verse 8 of chapter 15 and made down to chapter 15, verse 7, the end of chapter 14. Okay? So we'll have a talk with whatever dude messed this up in the Middle Ages. But, but for now... Let me just read Romans 15, verses 5 through 7, because this, this, is, this is the point that I think Paul is pointing us to in this whole chapter and a half. There really should be one chapter. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Man, that's a text right there. In other words, 
Man, be intentional about the Christian life in accord with Christ Jesus, full of truth, full of grace. Live graciously towards one another because there's something more important going on in your Christian life. God's put you in a church and he wants to bring glory to himself through the way that you live out this truth and love one another before a world that's watching. Come on, man. That, that's worth living for. And that's worth working through hard issues for. And that's worth being gracious with corny Christians and legalistic Christians and licentious Christians and Christians that get on our nerves. Maybe God has put you in a group of people who are hard to deal with so that you can live out Romans 15, 5 through 7. It's easy to glorify God with people that you get along with all the time, right? But the problem is, you really aren't glorifying God because the world looks at you with all your homeboys and says, oh, there's nothing special about that. But when he puts a bunch of people together who got no business being together except for Jesus and they, they walk slow and gracious and loving towards one another and are serious about the gospel and living it out, something beautiful happens and it's called the gospel aroma. And it comes down and people smell it and God draws his people to him and stuff starts happening. Happy birthday, Crosspoint. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, thank you for this text. Oh, this is so good. This is so good. We need to work these things out, Lord. This is rich. This is true. This is hard. This is beautiful. This is worth it. May we welcome one another. Because you welcomed us. You welcomed he welcomed me, and I had no business being a house slave in your beautiful home. But you made me more than a slave. You made us your child. And Lord, you've given us this great privilege to walk together, to love and live together in this type of harmony. Lord, make us, make us, Lord, give us the grace to live these things out, I pray, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.